Good evening. Another step closer to a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. Peru swears in a peasant president, and New York moves on mask and vaccination mandates. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, July 28, 2021. President Joe Biden and a bipartisan group of senators reached agreement Wednesday on a $1 trillion national infrastructure package, and the Senate appeared ready to begin consideration of a key part of the administration's agenda. An evening test vote was possible. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Tonight, I'm intending to call a vote to move to proceed to the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I believe we have the votes for that. And we will then proceed to do amendments and go forward on that bill. We are also in very good shape to move forward on the budget resolution with reconciliation instructions. So both tracks are moving forward in a very good way. Senator Chuck Schumer, lead Joe P. negotiator Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, announced a deal earlier at the Capitol. According to a 57-page GOP summary, the five-year spending package would be paid for by tapping some $205 billion in unspent COVID-19 relief aid and some $53 billion in unemployment insurance aid some states have halted. It also relies on economic growth to bring in $56 billion. Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, a lead Democratic negotiator, said she expected the package would have enough support to move forward. And the spread of the COVID-19 Delta variant is raising infections, leading some companies and governments to require vaccinations and raising concerns about the U.S. economic recovery. But today, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell injected a note of reassurance, suggesting that the Delta variant poses little threat to the economy, at least so far, despite a stubborn, pardon me, despite a stubborn bout of inflation. As the economy continues to reopen and spending rebounds, we are seeing upward pressure on prices particularly because supply bottlenecks in some sectors have limited how quickly production can respond in the near term. These bottleneck effects have been larger than anticipated, but as these transitory supply effects abate, inflation is expected to drop back toward our longer-run goal. At our meeting that concluded earlier today, participants expect that the economy will continue to move toward our standard of substantial further progress. And that is Jerome Powell. He's head of the Federal Reserve Board. It's not clear how the highly contagious and fast-spreading Delta variant of the coronavirus might affect the United States or global economies or how the job market will fare in coming months. Hiring could accelerate in September as schools reopen. More parents are able to take jobs and expanding unemployment aid programs expire. And in more economic news, more than a 1,000 members of the United Mine Workers of America carried their ongoing strike against Alabama's warrior Met Cole to New York City yesterday. Members picketed the Manhattan offices of BlackRock, an investment management corporation that is the world's largest asset manager. The union says BlackRock is the largest shareholder in the Alabama company, and the mine workers have been on strike against the company since April 1st. About 1,100 miners have been striking for better pay and benefits. A leader of the union spoke in New York yesterday. Get us a contract. Do you hear that, BlackRock? Get us a fair contract, and we'll go away. We'll go back to work in those coal mines where we should be. That's right. We rode up here on buses to tell you your investments need to be being put to use in these guys' salaries, in these guys' benefits, these guys that have earned you the profits that you're making from these coal mines. 
Warrior Met produces coal used in steel production in Asia, Europe, and South America. Warrior Met emerged from the bankrupt from bankruptcy proceedings of the former Walter Energy firm that went bankrupt in 2016. Union members say they made numerous concessions to keep the company going. They say those concessions total more than 1.1 billion dollars. And in international news, Pedro Castillo assumed the presidency of Peru a day that also marks 200 years since Peru became an independent nation. In a speech during his swearing-in, Castillo said COVID-19 vaccinations will be a priority of the new Peruvian government. José Pedro Castillo Terrones, juro por Dios, por mi familia, por mis hermanas y hermanos peruanos, campesinos, pueblos originarios, por un país sin corrupción y por una nueva constitución. Castillo added he plans to end malnutrition in the country, one of South America's richest, through a system of public purchases. The president has said that he is not going to live in the presidential palace, which is the former palace of the conquistador Francisco Pizarro, who in 1532 crushed the native Inca resistance in Peru and uh, put it under Spanish domination for many centuries afterwards. Castillo added the Spanish-era mansion will be converted into a historical museum by the future Ministry of Cultures. Then using Quechua, the indigenous language of his ancestors, he summed up his agenda in one sentence. One force, one heart, one direction, and that direction will be progress and social justice for all. And professor and graduate student in philosophy at Southern Illinois University, Carlos Garrido, says Castillo is another example of the popularity of socialism these days in Latin America. The swearing of Pedro Castillo, who is the first ever peasant president in Peru and who has sworn to represent the indigenous population. I mean, he, he got sworn in in a traditional Andean jacket with his cool little hat that he's always wearing. his cool <laughs> little cowboy hat. He has sworn to do something that I think is fundamental, which is to create a new constitution that goes against and radically transforms the free market uh, friendly constitution of the Fujimori dictatorship in 93. But also today, which is significant for the Latin American left, is that uh, the U.S. tried to call a meeting of, of the OAS about the situation in Cuba. Most of the countries rejected to meet. <laughs> what we've seen is a direct rejection of the U.S. narrative on Cuba globally. There's a positive feedback loop that happens when a socialist government comes about that it can only really be truly successful if it's able to establish bonds of solidarity with other socialist countries. He's facing some challenges, though. He's facing a highest in the world because of the, the COVID. Professor and graduate student in philosophy at Southern Illinois University, Carlos Garrido. And back in the United States, a prominent whistleblower is sentenced. Daniel Hale, who exposed the widespread murder of civilians in the U.S. drone strike war program, was sentenced to 45 months in prison. Rebecca Miles has been following this story and has more. The former U.S. Air Force intelligence analyst Daniel Hale was sentenced to 45 months in prison on Tuesday for leaking top-secret information on the U.S. government drone strike program. 
Hale was arrested in 2019 and charged under the Espionage Act. He pleaded guilty in March. Federal prosecutors argued his actions aided enemies of the U.S., but his defense team argued it didn't result in any substantial harm to national security. Speaking in the Eastern District Court of Virginia, Judge Liam O'Grady said the documents he disclosed went beyond his courageous and principled stance on drones. You are not being prosecuted for speaking out about the drone program killing innocent people, said O'Grady. You could have been a whistleblower without taking any of these documents. Hale had told the court in a letter he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and struggles whether he's deserving of his life and the right to pursue happiness. He served in the U.S. Air Force from July 2009 to July 2013. He was deployed to Afghanistan in 2012, where he witnessed a drone strike and in his letter said that as time went on, he could feel his heart breaking into pieces, watching people in the final moments of their lives. Prosecutors noted Hale began taking home classified information only a few weeks into a job at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency in 2014 and not long after making pledges to keep the government's secrets. He printed out three dozen documents, some classified according to the government, and shared several with Jeremy Scahill, a reporter for The Intercept, but not named in the indictment. The documents included a report finding that reliance on deadly attacks was undermining intelligence gathering. During one five-month stretch of an Afghanistan operation, the documents revealed nearly 90% of the people killed were not the intended targets. Hale did not in any way contribute to the public debate about how we fight wars, Assistant U.S. Attorney Gordon Cromberg said in court. All he did was endanger the people who were doing the fighting. Fred's family said military service was an awkward fit for Hale, who has struggled with depression throughout his life. He joined the Air Force to escape a poor fundamentalist home his attorney described as abusive. The Justice Department asked for a nine-year sentence, which would have been the longest punishment yet in a leak case. Use of the espionage in prosecutions was rare until the Obama and the Trump administrations when they become increasingly common. Under President Biden, the Department of Justice has banned the use of secret orders and subpoenas to obtain journalists' information. The Justice Department is still pursuing an espionage case against WikiLeaks founder and publisher Julian Assange that began under Trump. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. Thanks, Rebecca. And new guidance from the federal government set off a cascade of mask rules across the nation Wednesday as cities, state schools and businesses race to restore mandates and other others push back against the guidelines at a time when Americans are exhausted and confused over constantly shifting pandemic measures. The federal recommendations quickly plunged Americans into another emotionally charged debate over the face coverings meant to curb easy transmission of the deadly coronavirus in Florida. A Broward County school board meeting devolved into a screaming match between irate parents and board members on Tuesday. Some protesters even took to burning face masks outside the building. While Nevada, Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Missouri were among the locations that moved swiftly to reimpose indoor mask requirements following yesterday's announcement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But governors in Arizona, Pennsylvania and South Carolina said they would resist reversing course. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki responded to questions asking why 
the masks were necessary if the vaccines are actually working. If you were vaccinated, it can save your life. The clear data shows that this pandemic is killing, is hospitalizing, is making people very sick who are not vaccinated. That still continues to be the case, regardless of what the mask guidance looks like. If the vaccines work, which this sign says that they do, then why do people who have had the vaccine need to now wear masks, the same as people who have not had it? Because the public health leaders in our administration have made the determination based on data that that is a way to make sure they're protected, their loved ones are protected, and that's an extra step given the transmissibility of the virus. And that is Jen Sack. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, by Labor Day or be tested, Cuomo encouraged local governments to take similar steps in the state as well as school districts in areas where there are high COVID-19 positivity rates. Patient-facing healthcare workers at public-run hospitals will also be required to be vaccinated. Cuomo spoke earlier today. I think we need dramatic action to get a control of this situation. So in New York and our state hospitals, healthcare workers must get vaccinated for patient-facing healthcare workers. That is a point of contact that could be a serious spreading event, and we want to make sure that those healthcare workers are vaccinated. If the numbers continue to go up the way they're going up, I think school districts in those affected areas should strongly consider taking more aggressive action. And it will be hard. And I understand the politics. But I also understand if we don't take the right action, become super spreaders. Meanwhile, for his part, Mayor Bill de Blasio said the city will offer a cash incentive to people who get vaccinated. We are announcing a major new incentive that I think is going to be very, very appealing to New Yorkers. I know there's hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers ready to get vaccinated right now. Maybe they just need to focus a little more. And I'm sure they're feeling urgency at this moment, given what we see happen around us. So here's an announcement that I think will move a lot of people. Starting on Friday, we will provide at city-run vaccination sites, when you get your first dose of the coronavirus vaccine, when you get your first dose, you will get a $100 incentive. $100 for any New Yorker who goes to a city-run site to get vaccinated. We'll say thank you. We'll say we're really glad that you got vaccinated for yourself, for your family, for your community. And here's $100 to thank you for doing the right thing and to encourage people. And not only do you get the $100, you then qualify to be able to do everything else that's wonderful in this city, including the amazing concerts coming up. You can't go to those concerts unless you're vaccinated. Mayor Bill de Blasio. And in more Washington news, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot held its first hearing on Tuesday with emotional testimony from four law enforcement officers who defended the building that day. The officers spoke at times angrily about the physical and psychological injuries they sustained and gave a rare firsthand look at the types of attacks they and their fellow officers suffered. Nancy Pelosi, speaking earlier today, said the officers were heroes. There was an assault on that particular day. It wasn't just any day of the week to make sure that we did not honor the Constitution and that we would disrupt 
the peaceful transfer of power. Those law enforcement officers were heroes. They risked their lives. Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, outside the Capitol, Florida Republican Matt Gates appeared with several Trump supporters to denounce the hearings, but he was met with a strident heckler who kept asking if he was a pedophile. And that was a heckler yesterday when Matt Gates was trying to uh, have a press conference countering the hearings that were going on in Washington about the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Representative Matt Gates, close ally of former President Donald Trump, is being investigated by the Justice Department over whether he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paid for her travel with him. And in those hearings, one officer described how rioters attempted to gouge out his eye and called him a traitor as they sought to invade the Capitol. Another told of being smashed in a doorway and nearly crushed amid a medieval battle with a pro-Trump mob as he heard guttural screams of pain from fellow officers. A third said he was beaten unconscious and stunned repeatedly with a taser as he pleaded with his assailants, I have kids. A fourth relayed how he was called a racist slur over and over again by intruders wearing Make America Great Garb. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn describes how he was treated. A warning, if strong language offends you, turn away for the next two minutes. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded. Well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, fuck nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a nigger to his face, and that streak ended on January 6th. Yet another black officer later told me he had been cr- confronted by insurrectionists in the Capitol who told him, put your gun down, and we'll show you what kind of nigger you really are. To be candid, the rest of the afternoon is a blur. And as police officer, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn testifying yesterday, Officer Daniel Hodges, another member of the Washington police, described how the mob descended into terrorism. The crowd was overwhelmingly white. Uh, Males, usually a little bit older, middle-aged, older, but some younger. I think out of the entire time I was there, I saw just two women and two Asian males. Everyone else was white males. Um, They're, uh, they didn't say anything, especially um, xenophobic to me, but to uh, my black colleagues and anyone who's not white. 
and they would, some of them would try to, try to recruit me. One of them came up to me and said, are you my brother? Um, there are many, uh, many known um, organizations with ties to white uh, supremacy who had a presence there. I know like three percenters, Oath Keepers, that kind of thing. And um, everyone I've ever, people who associate with Donald Trump are uh, find more likely to subscribe to that kind of belief system. Metropolitan Police Officer Daniel Hodges. And finally, in more sad news, WBAI programmer Glenn Ford has passed. He was host of Black Agenda Report and editor of the publication of the same name. He was an activist who never backed down from controversy. Obama is the killer application for the other side. He is their secret weapon. His very presence in the White House is a narcotic a hallucinogen that causes all of the so-called traditional base of the Democratic Party to lose contact with some degree of reality. But it is most, it is most destructive in black America. And as Glenn Ford, activist Nellie Bailey was a producer of Glenn Ford's WBAI program. She says he'll never be forgotten. Glenn started off with Black Commentator, he and Bruce Dixon. From there, Bruce and Glenn moved on to form Black Agenda Report, a remarkable uh, news service and its importance and the attention that it gathered from the U.S. ruling class, which designated Black Agenda Report as an anti-U.S. government and pro-Russia, etc., in all that follows in that U.S. paradigm. He was a giant, a giant of an intellectual. He had the depth of insight in terms of U.S. imperialism, its impact at home and abroad, in particular against the working class population here in this country. And at the bottom of that austerity pool were blacks, and he wrote very eloquently about it. He wrote in depth about it how we should move forward. And it's such a tragedy that in this time of the confusion of the Biden administration as the lesser of the evil, that no such paradigm, political paradigm exists. It was Glenn who coined the political phrase of the black misleadership class. Friends of Glenn Ford are gathering to make sure that his legacy remains in the reality, the geopolitical reality of what it was and what it meant for blacks and everyone to understand the struggle before us in terms of waging our relentless fight against U.S. imperialism and its damage at home and abroad. 
activist and WBAI producer Nellie Bailey. And that's the WBAI News for Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>